Hello and welcome to the CS Ed Podcast, a podcast where we talk about teaching computer science with computer science educators to learn how they teach and manage their classrooms. I am your host, Kristen Stevens-Martinez, an assistant professor of the practice at Duke University, and joining me today is Dan, a teaching professor at UC Berkeley. Dan, tell us about yourself. What do you teach? How many students do you have? Sure. Hi. So happy to be on your podcast. Um, so as a teaching professor at UC Berkeley, we typically teach the lower division classes, uh, maybe the teaching techniques class and the ethics class. So that's kind of my rotation. Um, usually it's one big class and one small class uh, where um, our CS, I'm, I'm mostly in the rotation for CS0, our the course that we invented, The Beauty and Joy of Computing, that's around 200 or 300 students a semester. Uh, these are semesters, not quarters, by the way, 15-week semesters. Uh, I also teach our CS1 class, although we call it a CS1.5 because it's just so much in one class. This is CS61A, the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. And this has now, um, I taught it this spring to 1,300 students, and in the fall it's going to be 2,000. So I believe it's one of the largest classes wow. in, in the country. Uh, and I wow. and I'm in awe of people like John DeNero, who teaches it in the fall, uh, because that's when it's 2000. I teach it in the spring. I, I just recently taught it for the first time in 20 years or so in the spring. And it was only 13, only 1300. So <laughs> I'm thankful <laughs> that it wasn't 2000. And by the way, our largest classroom on campus is 800. So <laughs> we're we're challenged. We can talk about that. Um, most people do mm, watch, yeah. just watch it on YouTube, uh, actually. I also teach our uh, architecture class. We'll call it CS3, you know, after from one and two data structures being CS2. So our CS3 architecture class is called Great Ideas in Computer Architecture. Uh, that was coined by David Patterson, a Turing Award winner. Uh, and that's around 1,000 students. I also teach an animation course um, that's to... A, exactly 24 students. We make two teams of, of 12, and we teach it for a full year. So it's actually two back-to-back -back semesters. And I teach that oh. for, for a full year every other year um, to try to keep the animation uh, spirit going in, in, and the community going in, in, our, in our campus. Um, I also have been in the rotation of the ethics course. That's to about 250 students, um, and that's called the Social Implications of Computing. So that's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and typically the small so the small the small classes. You know, the, all of us are experiencing these enrollment pressures. So a small class used to be you know a teaching technique class to you know twenty five fifty students, uh, and now the small class is the ethics class to two fifty. So the big class is a thousand, and the small one is to two fifty. Um, but we've been team teaching that, so it actually isn't that bad. It's only meet, only meet, meets once a week, so it also isn't that bad. Could you talk a little bit about what a teaching professor is? Because I know the UC system is kind of unique in that perspective from a lot of universities. That's a great question. Um, so a teaching professor is a faculty uh, rank that doesn't have research as the kind of main thing that you use for promotion. Um, the, the criteria for promotion are... Uh, teaching quality, curriculum development, innovative curriculum development on the, on the local and the national scale, um, outreach, uh, scholarship as well, uh, but it isn't necessarily papers, so you can you know, have impact. It's, you know, Charles Isbell of Georgia Tech always talks about impact as the key measure of a, of a, of a faculty member. So the impact could be um, maybe you're doing a lot of best practices, maybe you're sharing software. So the nice thing about teaching professors uh, is that there's a, a little bit more, uh, it's not just the standard research as 90% of it, you know, maybe that's not true, but, and then service a little bit and teaching a little bit. 
Let's talk about exam creation. This is something that I'm always interested in talking to people about because my dissertation focused so much on how do students predict the output of code, and I looked at a lot of wrong answers, and so I'm, I feel like I'm pretty good at creating good multiple-choice distractor questions at this point. Oh, okay. But I'd love to hear your process for creating an exam. Well, I think this has been a recent movement. I certainly have been bitten by the bug to, to move toward multiple-choice uh, exams rather than open-ended exams. Uh, finding, I spent five years on the CS Principles Development Committee, and there were many, many cases when I found, like, you know what? These, if you have good enough distractors, the common answers, the common misconceptions that students put in, and then use use those as the distractors, obviously. But you, you know, people who've been doing this for enough times know that people will switch an and for an or, or get a true and a false wrong, or switch the order, mm -hmm. or not. You know, so mm -hmm. so we get pretty good at writing pretty good distractors, hopefully. Um, and if not, you know, the students win. So it's it means it's not the perfect assessment, but the students win if the distractors aren't perfect. So you were asking about the the process. Um, I, I'll just give you some sense of scale. I, I really, um, I enjoy writing exams. So I'll start by saying that. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the puzzle guy in me. Um, like I get to be the puzzle guy. I get to be the person thinking about how to create, you know, it's really, I think it's an art form, I, I, how to create a really good assessment question that gets to exactly the essence of what you, you know when you created a bad question because either it's all right or all wrong or it's confusing and you have to throw it out. I mean, there are a hundred ways to create bad questions, but a really well-crafted question, there's some beauty to it. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. And I, I, I'll, I'll, when, when I have, when I know I have an exam coming up to write, I'll, I'll use every spare moment thinking about questions. It's really fun. Like this is why I love my job so much is that my idle thoughts are thinking about fun things. How do I, how would I ask, oh, okay, what if I did that? And so I'm thinking in the shower, on the commute, on my drive. I mean, I'll, if I, I usually take public transportation to work, but I'll be on a drive. If I happen to drive one day, I'll be on a drive to work. And by the time I get there, an hour has gone by and I've like, I didn't notice it. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, when you're having a good time, when your thoughts are just so pleasurable that you don't even realize the time is passing like that. So if I have to then say, okay, well, I didn't have enough time to prep for it. Now I'm, now I've got an exam in a couple of days. Now it's kind of crunch time. This is when it's not as fun, right? I mean, it's a lot more fun to have, mm -hmm. to have a barbecue cookout and eat all you want, but it's not as fun if I say now in 20 minutes, you know, eat 25 brisket sandwiches or something. So if, if you, if you have, <laughs> If you if you have time you know time constraints, it really does take the fun out of it. So I really do try to try to think about you know giving a lot of lead time so I can have that spare time for that. But if I had to crunch on it, it takes me. So here's how it works: for an hour of assessment, and typically what I do with my midterms is I, I give two midterms and a final, um, and my first midterm is an hour long, and my second midterm is two hours long, and my final is three hours long. So it kind of goes one, two, three, uh, and I actually you know. The, the point value also follows in that one, two, three pattern. Um, it takes me about a full kind of weekend day, like a full 12 hour day. And that this is, you know, when you have to borrow time from the family to do this so it's hard. And during the semester, I'm fortunate to be able to move my schedule around to kind of have Tuesdays and Thursdays as my work days. I say work days. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like when I get to do write exams. Like I'm in meetings and teaching on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and Tuesdays and Thursdays are my work days. So I'll use a, two, a full Tuesday and Thursday, which means a full eight or nine hour day, then with the family in the evening, and then go back to work. So it's about 12 solid hours to create a one hour assessment. 
So for my, you know, if I, if I know I have mm-hmm. my first exam coming up, I need a one full day for that. I know I need a Tuesday and a Thursday for my second midterm, et cetera. So I think of that. That's a, that's a fair bit of, of work. And even though I've been doing it for 27 years, it takes me that much time. And maybe it's because I'm slow. I mean, I always, I'll always just credit that. Maybe it's because I put a lot of effort into it. I usually don't, I, I usually try to write a new exam every time. I try not to borrow other you know, older exam copies. You never know when they got out. You never know how unfair that's mm-hmm. going to be for somebody who might have a copy of it. Um, I, I do lean on that every once. I mean, the, the nice thing about it is I now have enough old exams that if I, if, you know, push comes to shove and I got sick or something, let's say I got mono for the week that I was going to be prepping and I couldn't do anything. Well, I could always lean on an old exam and grab a piece from this year and grab a piece from that year. So it's nice having those resources and no student's going to go through, you know, 25 years of this thing. So I can grab pieces from other folks. There's a lot of uh, exams online, so I can go online, even not grab my own, but I can grab someone else's question that I really liked and pull that in and maybe modify it in a small, mm-hmm. a small way. So the point is it takes a long time. So it's a long yeah. answer to a short question, which is um, it is a fair investment of my time to build these exams. Yeah, if I think about how long it takes me to write an exam, my exams are 75 minutes for the both midterms. And it takes me probably about the same ratio. Like, hmm. it, I can't do 12-hour a day make an exam. Like, I have to spread it out over the course of a, of a week or two. Sure. But it takes me 12 to 15 hours to make an exam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes a while. And especially because to make a really good exam, if it's any piece of code in there, you want to write it yourself. You want to play mm-hmm. with it. You want to make sure. I mean, like, there's nothing. I mean, as I said, there's a lot of ways to make a bad exam. But one way to make a bad exam is to never test it, right? Oh, well, here's a yes. piece of code. And the, no, well, I had nine errors. I didn't realize it. Yeah, yeah. You got to test it. And that's how you often make exams. You make an interesting question and then you pull pieces out and you put that in there. But it, but it isn't always, I mean, you mentioned earlier um, that sometimes, you you know, you ask students to say, predict the output. That That is something I want to talk about because that's just one of 15 ways you can address coding exams. Uh, and mm-hmm. and, and, and I, it's funny is if people, we spend a fair bit of time in our teaching techniques course, actually kind of the advanced one, the one where I'm preparing future instructors, talking about exam writing and how easy it is to fall into a trap of only, I'm not saying you do this, but only writing predict the output kind of questions or write a function kind of questions. Write a function that test to see if a list is all in, in order. It's just really mm-hmm. easy to fall into that trap of just write a function, write a function, write a function, um, or predict the output, predict the output, predict the output. And there's so many different elements to that that uh, that I think are really important to add. So that's that's the other piece of it, is that I'm thinking about, as I'm writing the exam, I'm, all these parts of my brain are firing, thinking about, well, that question was a predict the output. So that means I, I owe the students a right of this. And I, I also owe them a debug. I owe them a, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so there's a lot of other elements I try to hit in my, and that's kind of, I have this, I, I'm going to get to, I have this five rule of the five finger rule that as I'm writing it, I'm saying like, am I checking all five boxes for my five finger rule? So I'll talk about that in, in a moment. So what is your five finger rule? Ah, you can go straight into yeah, that. Jump right like in. To talk about sure, that. I'll jump right in. Um, so this evolved over the course of, of years. And I haven't seen this any other place. So I'm happy to share this. And I'm, I'm also happy to learn and realize I'm missing a finger and it should be the six finger rule. Um, so, and this isn't really in any order. So that's the first piece of it. This shouldn't be kind of bulleted as number one is the most important. The first is the most obvious, and some of these are going to be obvious to most, you know, seasoned instructors. So I, I don't claim to have cornered the market on this idea, but you know, the, kind of all of it together, maybe this is a unique way to, to look at it. So the first is coverage um, between the last exam and your exam. You've had some material, and you have to obviously make it very clear what is in scope for the exam, and then 
you have to decide how much time you've been putting into each of these topics and how much to then assess. How much the percentage of both time and points are going to be reflective of that. Um, so as I said, there's a hundred ways to make a terrible exam. And another way to make a terrible exam would be to highly emphasize and heavily point weight the thing you talked about in passing on the last lecture, right? That would be crazy. So mm-hmm. so you have to kind of make it balanced in terms of the time given to the material during the, during the time and and the exam. The other question you have to ask about coverage is, is it, is it only, let's say you're talking about midterm two. So are you only being tested on the material between one and two, or is it, you know, cumulative? So you need to think about those things and make that clear to the students that they need to not worry about midterm one material because you were tested already, or will you see that again? You know, if people, I'll, I love doing that, by the way. I love having students struggle. I don't like having students struggle. I, I certainly want all my students to ace every exam. I, I never do that to try to, you know, I, in fact, I tell my students, if I, if I, at the end of the year, if my histogram isn't all of you getting a perfect score, I've failed because it means that I didn't set up the ecosystem. I didn't teach you, right, you know, things that I didn't know. I didn't set up the learning environment to have you all succeed. But the idea is, um, you're making it clear whether the material is cumulative or not. And it, it, it is interesting if it's not. If you say, no, it's only since midterm one, I mean, the easier answer is to say it's always cumulative it's because you never know when there's an element for midterm one that kind of is needed for the question in midterm two, even though it's not mm-hmm. explicit. So, no, you said I didn't need it. Well, but you kind of still. So, you all, I mean, I think the default is you always say it's cumulative. Um, it'll heavier weighted the new stuff, but obviously cumulative overall. But I love doing. Yeah, that's, the, that's what I use. Yeah. I, like I, heavily weighted towards the more recent stuff. Exactly. <laughs> but the other thing is I really like if students missed a question on midterm one. I really like the idea of a small twist on it and you ask them again. Like not exactly the same, but you ask them again. So that's the first that's the first finger is coverage. Um the second finger is time. So many times when you beta test these exams, you should expect your TAs to take it in one sixth of the time. So that's really hard. And, and that's really short. Yeah, that's really short. Um, and uh, you know what you do? You kind of you, you you it's like it's like hope you know hope for the best, but plan for the worst. So you hope for a mm-hmm. sixth, but you live with a fourth. But you really try to lock okay. it down like, but no worse than a third. I mean, I really mean that the slowest TA gets it done in a third of the time. I really mean that. And to get there, I want to honor. Julie Zielinski and Nick Parlante, who argued, who used to share, you know, best practices of making exams in some teaching track um, se- sessions at SIGSI. And they talk about a lesson they've learned, which I, when I heard that, I said, oh man, that's so right. And I hadn't been doing it. So I was really thankful that they shared that, which is cut out all the stories. I used to love setting up a question with Bob lives in a dungeon and there's dragons <laughs> and you you want to fight the dragon. And it's this complicated story and it has nothing to do other than for me to set a context and motivate. No, if you want them to sort a list, make them sort a list. You don't need to tell a story about the list is the dragon people and the knights who all got eaten. No, just have them jump straight into it. Take all the air out. What abstraction is, you know, one argument of abstraction is it's detail removal. Um, Jerry Seinfeld talks about the idea of taking all the air out of a joke. You take, remove every extraneous word, every extraneous pause, just to have the fewest number of words that get the point across. I think of exactly that with exam creation, with question creation. You want to take and pump all the air out of the system so there isn't any flowery story that surrounds it. It is just exactly the minimal needed 
to go in and get in and get into the meat of the question and then be able to work with it. You know, you, you certainly need to add constraints and boundaries around the outside of these problems sometimes. So it's about taking all the air out and having minimal wording. If there's more than a paragraph to read before you're ready to go, it's too much. Yeah, I think I'm I'm a little guilty of having a little bit too much backstory yeah, no, in my no. exam questions. And, and, I'm getting and, I'm trying to get better at weeding it out. That's exactly right. And I was bad when I was young as well. I think it's one of the things you gain with experience. Um, part two about time is the ratio between points and time should be about consistent. So you, mm-hmm. if you, as I said, you can make a bad exam where you have one question worth the whole thing that takes no time. And if you either get it or you don't, that's, that's harder. So you want to make sure that, you know, the ratio of where you're spending your time in the exam, and this is why it's useful to beta test these exams with a lot of your staff before, um, mm-hmm. is, is appropriate. And ask them to look at that, ask them to have that lens and say, you know, when you're giving your, your, your kind of quote-unquote TA feedback. Be a student and take it as a student, but then be a TA and give me your TA feedback and tell me, does it feel like the ratio is right in terms of points to time? And also, one last piece, I found it useful sometimes to put estimated times on exams. So if I find that there's a really heavy question, um, they might not realize that you expect it to be you know, half the exam, right? It might not be half mm-hmm. the exam in terms of paper, but it's half the exam in terms of where you want them to focus their time. So if you put estimated time, if you say, you know, it's a two-hour exam and this is a 60-minute question, if they, oh, I see 60 minutes and they're doing that, that it makes sense um, to, uh, to, to be able to give them some, some, some heads up that they're not, they're not getting drowned. I mean, a lot of issues with people performing poorly is that they get stuck on the first question and can't get out, right? They get down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, oh boy, there's no time left because question one was so juicy or so interesting or they couldn't, you know, they didn't re- take time to look up. They just got into it and now they they can't finish the exam. That's terrible. So this is why yeah. you this is why you go for the sixth, the fourth, the fifth. You know, I try to stress to young teachers, try to have everyone done with your exam by the end. By the time the bell goes off, it should be an empty classroom. If that's the case, you've done great on the time management part of it. Yeah, for me, I also have my TAs beta test my exams. I actually do two rounds. Like, there's one round, and sure. then I fix it, sure, and then there's sure, another sure. round. Yeah, we, throw, we, we and, go through a couple rounds as well, yeah. And I and I have them fill out a spreadsheet telling me, how many minutes did it take you to do every single question? And then I'm doing all of this, like, extra math. But usually <laughs> I do multiply. I, I multiply by three. I probably should do by four, because I'm definitely seeing from my past year of teaching that my exams are a little too long. And, and that's actually, it's very, that's, that's my next topic, which is range of difficulty. And my first bullet point that I made notes for my, to, to remind me to, to mention is that TAs write two difficult questions. And I say TAs yeah. in the TAs and young faculty, meaning when I was a young professor, I, my exams were too hard. Uh, and I was famous for having the hard exams. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, I, 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 I took a little pride. Oh, I wrote the hard exams. No, that's not good. You want to have an exam that allows everyone from kind of the A student to the C student. You know, I'm not going to really focus on the D student. If you're really a D student, maybe you shouldn't be in my class. But there's an A to C, and that's, the, that's kind of the safe range for A to C. So in the A to C student, you want to have things that the C student can grab a hold of. And, that the, and, and there should be questions that only the B students and above can grab a hold of. And there should be questions that only A students can grab a hold of. And mm-hmm. you should... Um, you should in within an exam, have the questions go from easier to harder so that people don't get stuck on the hard one and think, oh, God, you know, the morale is just done. I, if I can't answer this question, I can't do anything. Well, it got easy after that. Well, that's not as useful as having that hard question at the end. I think it's great if you let, the, let, let people know that it's a hard question. 
I, I've written that. This is a hard question. We don't expect everyone to finish it. People always get upset if you say we don't expect everybody to finish it. So that I've taken that last yeah. part out. But but I do say this is a hard question so that they'll at least know that, oh, I'm having trouble with this. Look, maybe I'm not the only one. Because a lot of times people always feel, uh, not always, but a lot of times students feel, especially students who are often underrepresented, feel like if, if they're having trouble, they're the only ones and everyone else must be doing yeah. well. No, everyone else is having trouble too. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't think it's only you. So um, I internally uh, label each question A through C. I try to put my C's first. Um, I wanted to also talk about uh, partial credit. Partial credit isn't part of my five, but partial credit kind of goes in the difficulty, which is if you give um, a, if you give a hard question, it's nice if A, it's broken up into parts where even a C or B student can get some of the earlier parts of this hard question. And so maybe it's a three mm-hmm. or four part exam. Um, and even, you know, it's not like, a, a, a B or C student can't answer anything of an A question. You want to have enough parts to it that they can grab pieces of it and feel like, okay, I, I got this question a little bit. I couldn't do the extra part because that was the hard, that's where you're combining three things, but the early one, I can get the idea of that. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I try to do that. And that, that also gets to the sub-conversation of um, you don't want to have cascading questions. It's hard to go back and, and have a student say, look, I messed up A, but see how B and C or D are consistent? So I have this really clever idea, which I learned which is if you have B make use of A's result, say at the beginning of the B question, say, assume from this point on, whatever you wrote in question A is called the variable A. And so in B, if there's an expression, it'll be the answer will be as a function of A. So whatever you wrote in the slot for A, I don't I ignore mm-hmm. that anymore because the expression for B should have the variable A in it and it can be right. So even if you got A wrong by, you know, two two times too big or too small or a plus one, mm-hmm. then B can still be right. So it's a way to kind of counter that cascading effect. Yeah, I do that with helper functions. Like assuming helper function a, part A works. Exactly, exactly. Use it in part B. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's great. I want to be careful of time. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So we've gone three. What about, what's your number four? Um, Four is, uh, and I learned this one from Mike Clancy, four is types of question. So we talked a little bit earlier about making sure it's not just predict the output or write the function. But, you know, if you're writing, it's a coding exam, think about what does this function do? Write this function. Find the case that reveals reveals the bug in the function. Uh, Fix the bug. Then what happens? What input triggers the bug? Uh, Given this output, what's the function's input? How about that? Kind of reversing it. I hadn't thought of that. Right? It's, aha, you learned something today. Um, uh, and feel free to come up with your own. So I really like buggy questions where you can say, you know, what input doesn't trigger the bug? What, you know, even what class of inputs? How about that? Thinking about almost, almost like a language thing. What class of inputs doesn't trigger the bug? What class of inputs does trigger the bug? Now make the mm-hmm. fix. Now make the fix and show me how it works. Or maybe there's two bugs and you fix the first one and you say, well, the first bug, the numbers are negative for some reason. Why is that? So you kind of give them a hint of what the first bug is. Let them fix that. When you say, now there's still one remaining bug and it maybe doesn't work for lists that are length one or something special, some special, you know, degenerate case. Um, Mm -hmm. I love the idea of Parsons problems. As I said, I moved um, to to try to do um, multiple choice exams. So Parson problems are that way you get given a chunk of code and you put them in the right place, uh, which works great for blocks-based languages where, you know, I can have a snap file that's open with all the blocks there, but you have to kind of reorder them in the right way. Harder to do that with exams. And so we've been creative about kind of ordering things or setting them up. I really want to have full creativity. So I want to be able to have students not... In the olden days, we used to write questions with resistance, write a function and a big, huge block. And it was impossible to grade. And that's, um, that's my last my last finger, but I'll jump to that. So 
because we don't want to have just one big block where you can't grade and there's a million different possibilities, you try to have maybe lines where the, where the template, you know, if blank, else blank. So there's some blanks in there to help them to control um, the, the, the variety of answers you'd see. But also allowing to say, here are these five things, and actually saying, just order them. Somehow the order is going to do the right thing. It's kind of a fun thing to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So um, we talked about cascading. Um, the other thing I want to mention is um, sometimes I, I, what I love to ask, and this is, I didn't put this on my list, but I, one of my favorite questions is, what could the function ever do? So we had like a, it was like, a, you know, like an L system, like a recursive, a very small recursive thing. It was like a dance. It said, you know, if, if day equals one, return stop. Otherwise, it's like, or, you know, day less than two, return stop. Then it's like you say, well, then it's like, um, you make a sentence where you're joining it together of like um, go left and then day minus two. It's, called, it's almost like a Fibonacci where you're calling yourself minus two and minus one. So, mm -hmm. so you join the output of day minus two. Or so you say left, day minus two with right, day minus one and reverse or maybe reverse of day minus one and stop or something. And so then you say like, uh -huh. what could you ever? So this is a dance where you're supposed to move left and right or stop. Okay. And so you, the question you would ask is, could you ever have three lefts in a row? So in a way, you're, oh. you're, you're asking them to like see a pattern as you're moving forward. And you realize, you know what? You can have two lefts in a row, but the output of this will never have three lefts in a row. So there are some questions I've asked that are almost like at the junior level, but I've asked this to non-majors and people can get it. People can say, you know, the pattern, because, and they, I'm not asking for a proof, right? I'm not, that would be the kind of discrete math, the theory classes. But I'm asking, you know, could you see that it would ever have, three, and know what, this output would never have three lefts in a row. That's a really interesting kind of way to ask a question that's above and beyond this, what does a function do? There, mm -hmm. that's bullet, that's the thumb, thumb number four. Finally, thumb five is easy, to, and this is your thumb, by the way, this is the last finger of your thumb, Easy to grade. And this is why yes. I've moved. I mean, this is, I did not know this early. And we, we, I have stories. I'm not joking. I have stories of teaching our CS1 class, starting grading at 6 and finishing at 6 a.m. And every TA uh -huh. stayed in the room and we were all dead the next day. The TAs didn't have the wherewithal to say, you can't make me miss my classes next day. You know, I, I'm a student too, but we did. And that's mm -hmm. what we all, we just did. That was, that's, that was what everyone was doing, right? No one, no one knew better. So we learned yeah. better to say, one, use Gradescope. Gradescope is this amazing tool. It happened to come out of Berkeley, but I'm, it's not, not only that, I'm, I'm, using, I'm extolling the virtues of it. It's an amazing tool that lets you scan your exam into PDF, and then you can grade it from anywhere. And so now yep. everyone, and it, you can grade it in parallel, and you can update your rubrics. There's like 100 reasons Gradescope is amazing. Um, and Gradescope, I love Gradescope. They, they were bought by Turnitin, so now it's a part of a larger company, and they're stable, but it's amazing, amazing, amazing tool. Please use it. So this advocates for me, at least for multiple choice questions, because Gradescope can auto-grade multiple choice questions. I'm telling you, we give an exam and an hour after scanning, it's done. Like it's, I have yep. one TA who kind of coordinates the boxes and makes sure the boxes look good and pushes go and it's all done. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> so use Gradescope. <laughs> Think about multiple choice exams. Multiple choice exams are great, um, except that there are some questions that you cannot get. So I would say 95% of the questions you want to ask, you can write great distractors and make multiple choice, multiple choice exams work. 
Uh, and also, mm -hmm. not just multiple choice uh, single select, but also make sure you have multiple choice multiple select, where it's not it's not just one of the four where they're guessing from one of four choices or one of five. It is check the ones that are true for. So that's actually harder for them to kind of get, and you have to think about how to grade those. What we do is we usually do an XOR. So the questions you can't ask in multiple choice exams are trying to come up with an algorithm design. There's no way that if I showed you five solutions, you couldn't just run each solution through and say, well, that doesn't work. Well, that one, oh, that one works, right? That doesn't make any sense to yeah. have that question be yeah. multiple choice. That's the space where you want them that, that full creativity on display. So if you want full creativity on display, that's when you kind of have to have a big old white, white box and put your stuff into the box. Um, so multiple choice handles, 95% of the cases, it's not like that. But every once in a while, you really want them to do some algorithm design. And that's when you, you want you want a, a shoe the idea of, of having uh, multiple choice. And that's it. Those are my five tips. So as we wrap up, I want to make sure we get to our next segment, which is something awesome in CS, where you get to share something or someone from computer science you think is interesting, though maybe not necessarily well known. Sure. So I, I want to give uh, an homage to the people who were my mentors when I was growing up. I, I think these folks have fundamentally and foundationally influenced who I am as an instructor, at least with, you know, within the topic of, of, of exam design, but also just in general to, to, as, a, as a professional. Um, these are my mentors, Mike Clancy uh, and Brian Harvey at Berkeley. They're both emeritus teaching professors. Um, what Mike taught me um, was don't just write a function that. His exams had questions that were all over the map. So really kind of the, the thumb that, that talks about question uh, types is really all for Mike. I got that to think about, could you ask a question where you had two bugs and then you fix the bug? And I just love those questions. And I appreciated seeing examples of how to write great questions from Mike. Mike is one of the best uh, ever at writing these kind of questions, these kind of really creative questions. I also want to honor uh, a teaching, emeritus teaching professor, uh, Brian Harvey, uh, another one of my mentors, who taught me, number one, that eschew grades. Like, grades, get grades out of the equation. Le grades are going to be an impediment to learning. So if we have to deal with grades, so if you have a choice, don't have any grades at all. But if you have to have them, try to be creative about them. He tries to always see when he's doing uh, assessment of things, he tries to have an idea of does a student have the idea? Does it, is a student perfect? Like of a five-point question, five points is they're perfect. Four is do they have the idea? And being really soft about what has the idea means. What is the essence of that question? And yeah, you get this wrong and this wrong, but you got the idea of recursion is call yourself or whatever. So maybe the, the details of it are wrong and you lose a couple points here, but you have the idea. So the bulk of the points you get for having the idea. Or then you also mm -hmm. might have have some idea. So they were they were not clue, fully clueful, but they were not clueless. They had some idea, so you want to make sure this yeah. is sprinkled in there. So just having this, this nice range. Um, he had this wonderful idea of group exams, which we tried together, and it was harder to do. Um, oh. Group exams are the idea that you have an exam, you launch it, and then you collect it, and then the students have already been working in groups because you obviously we have group teaching and learning communities. And so we try to have our students work in teams to, to do some of their projects. You have the students sit next to their teammates. So they're sitting to people they work with already. And then you either hand the exam out again and have the whole team take the exam. After everyone having everyone taken it individually, they now take it as uh -huh. a team. Or you could have like 
a question that was a hard question that wasn't on the exam and you give them some new question to take as a team. Mm -hmm. And so, but the point is, you're allowed to talk. And so you look back and they're just all talking and learning and they're not cheating. They're not like listening to the neighbors. They don't care about that. They're working together and it's worth a smaller fraction of the whole grade. So the whole grade might be 80% your individual and 20% the group. But it's really great to have see people and to see people, A, work collaboratively on exams. I just love that idea. Two, feel that the smartest kid in a group isn't the person that always talks. Sometimes they'll be listening and learning, and the score of the group was higher than any individual person's score also, which is really great. Um, mm -hmm. So he also was amazing at writing really, really clean written solutions. Like his... He's a wonderful writer. And so you would look at his written solutions. And there was so much teaching in that. It's almost like you felt reading his solutions as if he sat down with you and explained every point. He explained the purpose of the question, explained what the question was trying to ask. He explained how to think of it. He explained two or three possible solutions. He explained how the, what, the, how the, what the rubric is, why the rubric was what it was in terms of part. I mean, he was so good about writing these tomes, these documents that were these written solutions. I really, really appreciate that. I also, mm. I also want to mention that Mike, I, I forgot this, but I wanted to say, Mike also said students have trouble if you give them experience in lab, always with a computer, always with an interpreter, always with a compiler, always with a computer support, but then ask them in this strange paper and pencil sense to do something they've never done all year. So he mm -hmm. would advocate for with computer exams. And so we do that in our BJC course. We have a with computer part of the exam where I take oh. almost like the harder question I would have done it for that group exam. I take it away from the actual paper exam and I make it be on computer. And it's still solo. It's not teamed, but they get to work with the inter with our SNAP uh, programming environment and and. It's great. I can, and I can either give them a, you know, a, a starting point where it's like a half-written program, say debug it or fix it, or say go from scratch and write this thing. And it's something that, again, they can do within the time range, but that's a fraction of their grade. So I've appreciated it's, it's hard to coordinate, um, but I've appreciated that, the, the, the spirit of, of what I've learned from both of them in thinking of how to think of exams writ large. It, it took a lot of coordination to set up our first with computer exams. Um, mm hmm and there's a whole we, this this is a whole another conversation. But Craig Zillis of a UIUC is trying to build a computer-based testing facility where you're, there are no exams. You have this lab that's staffed by professional staff with cameras all around, and you push a button, and brr, an exam is generated for you. And this exam is every two weeks you have an exam, and so there's no final exam in this model. It, an exam is generated, uh -huh. and you take it, and it's you know like you have to write exam generators, but you take it, and then here's a great thing: the next week, if you get it wrong. You can then go back and it, it knows what you got right, what you got wrong. And you can go back and be given another questions that are, again, regenerated anew, but only the ones you got wrong from the week before you would take the second mm -hmm. week. So, But imagine mm -hmm. if you did this all semester, it basically can prove in some sense mastery. At some point, you've shown some mastery of everything. Um, and there could be there's no, there's no final. These exams are smaller, lighter weight exams. So there's a whole, yeah. there's a whole conversation, which maybe you should bring up in another time which is having one or two uh, big midterms versus like an exam quizzy every week and no midterms. You know, if you that, yeah. that makes you keep up and you don't have to lose. That's kind of the model for lab-centric curriculum that Mike Clancy has been advocating for is mm -hmm. um, you, you'd never fall behind because lab-centric material means like you're on the, that week's lab. You know, the idea of going to lecture, skipping lecture, and then cramming for the midterm, you can't do in a lab-centric experience because you're in lab with the TA. You've got to do that week's lab. It like forces you to be up with the material. So in mm -hmm. a way, these kind of mini small quizzes every week 
the idea of having no final is amazing. So that's actually one of my research projects is could I build a generator for my Beauty and Joy competing class that would allow me mm. to know mastery of my students along the way. And at any point, I could look to see my whole, um, the, all, the, all of my student work and see how they've done. And then by the end, I know that my students have mastered all the elements, and maybe the last four weeks would be for repeated taking or you know repeated exams where you can t- keep taking the questions that you know the last month or so their students are working on projects anyway. There's not a lot of new material other than kind of fun lectures. So could mm-hmm. could I have that be a time where the students are kind of taking mini finals, where like they're one hour finals, and the moment you ace something, you show me you know that material. I don't need to test you again on that. So uh-huh. you keep doing this. So by the by the end, there'd be no final exam. And there'd be no exams. It'd be this like thing you just do in lab. You just do this in lab, and it's kind of fun, and you mess it up. It's like Khan Academy. You know, you mess it up, so you drop back. Nobody cares. Imagine that model for all the assessment of a class. So I'm working on trying to write autogenerators for questions, and that might be the future. It's kind of exciting. So with our last segment, TLDL, or Too Long Didn't Listen, what would you say is the most important thing you would want our listeners to get out of our conversation? Um, one, uh, if there's only one thing I can say, it would be that try to have a rubric for yourself as you look to exam authoring. Um, I've come up with what I call the five finger rule. Feel free to adopt that. Take a finger off if you don't, doesn't matter to you, blah, blah, blah. But my five fingers are material coverage. Try to make sure that the exam you're asking covers the material in the appropriate way, uh, equivalent to what, how it was being uh, emphasized in class. Reasonable time. Try to have your TAs or beta testers take it in four or, or more times less uh, than, than the actual student time. Or, or, or even just give your students more time. Uh, another way to, to, to deal with that. Uh, difficulty range says that try to have a range of questions from A to C. Label them. Be clear about them. Put the Cs first. Put the easier midterms first to allow people to have early confidence and not get stuck. Uh, put question types. Think about different question types. It's like it's like Bloom's, obviously, in Bloom's hierarchy, but it's, it's that with an angle toward how you ask about coding uh, and try to be creative with it. Um, and uh, ease of grading. So think about at the end of the day, you're going to have a staff member. And I think, by the way, I, I remember visiting uh, Australia for a while, and they didn't have TAs. So they have a two-week grading period where every single exam uh, is graded by the faculty member uh, solo, final exam. Wow. Yeah. So so the, the, <laughs> these folks have obviously perfected the idea of ease of grading because it's their own time, not their staff's time. But thinking about that and thinking how your grade scope can help you and thinking of multiple choice. And I've, I've now been you know swung. I, I'm a multiple choice fan now. Although there are times where I pull back and I'll say, you know what, this this has to not be multiple choice, and I'll I'll say that I reserve the right to take some of these questions off multiple choice, but most of them are. So five mm-hmm. fingers: coverage, time, difficulty, question types, and easy grading. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Now, my pleasure. Well, what fun this was. This is great. <laughs> this was the CSAD podcast, hosted by me, Kristen Stevens Martinez, at Duke University edited by Susanna Robertson, and funded by a 60 Special Project grant. And remember, teaching computer science is more than just knowing computer science, and I hope you found something useful for your teaching today.